in the book of Judges. So if you will, please join me in turning to chapter 4 of Judges. We're going to look at chapter 4 and chapter 5. Now, this past week was my wife's birthday. And so we did sort of all the normal birthday things, right? I, I, I tried to do special things. There were some presents. And then we culminated like most birthdays do, with cupcakes. Right, we do cupcakes. Cake's weird. We do cupcakes in my family. So we had cupcakes, and we sang a song. Right? We, we gathered around the table. Everyone got a cupcake. One cupcake had a few candles. I won't tell you how many candles were in that cupcake. I lit the candle, and then we sang happy birthday. And I've been reflecting on this because it's interesting that um, in times of celebration like birthdays or like parades, isn't it interesting how we just have to incorporate songs into times of celebrations? Uh, Years ago, I was at a Portland Trailblazer Trailblazer playoff game with uh, some family members. They were playing the Clippers. They weren't supposed to win. And as time started ticking down, it became apparent they were going to win. And so there we were, staying in a row. There was like eight men. I knew like four of them. We're standing in a row. The game is over, and we didn't leave. We didn't leave because we were celebrating, and we weren't just celebrating. We were singing. Like the whole arena is just singing, chanting. We just couldn't. We were just so excited, right? Right? You know those times or those feelings where you feel too cool to sing? Not, not that. Not at that moment, right? No one, no man, woman, or child was too cool to sing. We were all cheering. When we're delighted, right? When joy comes upon us, when we celebrate birthdays and wedding days, we just sing. It's sort of natural, isn't it? We might even dance. Now, we might not sing well. We might not sing on tune. Some might sing loud. Some might sing quietly. But sometimes when, when we experience something, when we see something that's just wonderful and delightful, there's, there's something that just bubbles up inside of us and it just leads us to want to sing. And it's just not Americans, right? Every country I've been to, every culture that I'm aware of, right, When they experience joy, they sing. Sometimes, old and new, you just can't stop the music, can you? Some of you might get that reference. So this morning, we're going to look at a story and then a song. We're going to look at a story that was so culturally captivating, it led, naturally, to cultural singing. This morning in chapter 4, we're going to read of a story. And then in chapter 5, we're going to read and apply a song. Now, we're going to spend more time in the song. And if you're wondering why are you going to spend more time in chapter 5 than chapter 4, why are you giving more attention to the song than the story, well, there's a reason. Sometimes when you want to understand a moment in time, the best thing to do is to study the music of the time. So if you want to understand the 90s, you got to listen to New Kids on the Block, right? 
Right? If you want to understand the boy band craze, you've got to understand where it started. It was their fault. And so, if we want to understand the story of chapter 4, well, we need to turn on the Bible's iTunes playlist and listen to its song. So first, we're going to look at the story in chapter 4. I'm going to read all of it. And before I read all of it, like I do every week, there should be a big idea behind me in the screen. This is the big idea of chapter 4 and chapter 5. It's natural to sing when we learn that God is fighting for us. That's, that's what we're going to look at today. So if you will, you would be very helped to follow along. Go to Judges chapter 4. We'll start at verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Hiroshim Hagayim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, the prophetess, the wife of Liptoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinam, from Kadesh Nephtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Nephtali and the people of Zebulun? And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you at the river of Kishon with the chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulon and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber, the Kenanite, had separated from the Kenites the descendant of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent far away at the oak in Zenanimim, which is near Kadesh. When Cicero was told that Barak, the son of Abinom, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Cicero called out to his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all of the men who were with him, from Hiroshim Hagayim in the river of Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Cicero into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army of Hiroshim, Hagayim, and all of the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, and there was peace be- for there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. 
So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I'm thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, for if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone there here? Say, No. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was laying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with a tent peg in his temple. So on that day God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. That's the story. Now, starting back in verse 1, we've, we've sort of seen this before. We're going to it, see it again. Verse 1, the people of God, Israel, once again do evil in the sight of the Lord. They worshiped other gods. And so they then, in response, become enslaved to Jabin, the king of Canaan. Now, this king ruled in Hazor, which was a sort of fortified city in the territory of Naphtali. Naphtali being one of the tribes of Israel, one of the 12 tribes. Now, just to kind of put this into geographic perspective, this is about 10 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. It's sort of on the border of of Israel and Lebanon. And we learn in verses 2 and 3 that Jabin's main agent of oppression is a commander named Sisera. Now, Sisera has 900 chariots of iron, which might not mean much to us, but maybe let me put it into perspective. Sisera's got smart bombs and drones at his dispensal. And for 20 years, Israel is oppressed. Actually, our text says they are cruelly oppressed. You might remember Othniel's oppressor, Cush the doubly wicked. And they might have been dreaming of Cush the doubly wicked. Here's a man who for 20 years oppressed them cruelly. And so then, in some ways, as a great surprise, we read in verse 4, there's a woman, Deborah, a prophetess. Meaning that she spoke the word of God to the people of God. She was a sort of regional judge, judging God's people. You could think of her this way. She was sort of a, the Supreme Court justice in that area. And God used Deborah to guide and lead the people in that time. But as you can imagine, Deborah, the prophetess, isn't a warrior. She's a prophet. They needed a warrior. Verse 6, enter Brack. His name, Brack, means lightning. And Deborah declares throughout her sort of prophetic ministry that God's going to use Brack to rescue and deliver his people from the oppression of King Jabin. 
And so he commissions, or she commissions Brack and says, I want you to gather the 10,000 men and meet me on Mount Tabor. Now, we have sort of no idea why Brack's chosen, right? We have guesses. In many ways, we could say that about all the people in, all the sort of deliverers in the book of Judges. Why, why him? Right? He, he's sort of from nowhere. Well, it wasn't Deborah's choice. Brack wasn't Deborah's recruit. He was God's recruit. And so in verse 6 and 7, Deborah gives, God, gives Brack his marching orders. He says, gather on Mount Tabor, and you're, I'm gonna, God's going to bring Sisera to the, kind of the, the edge of Mount Tabor, the bottom of Mount Tabor, and then you're going to fight Mount Tabor, and God gives this wonderful, wonderful promise. He says, and you're going to win. You are assured of the win. How would Brack respond? Well, we learn in verse 8. He sort of equivocates, doesn't he? He pauses. Maybe it's out of fear, but he pauses and he thinks, well, I have 10,000 militia against a well-trained, well-armed Sisera. There's no chance of victory. And then verse 8, he tells Deborah this. He says, I'll go, I'll fight, only if you come with me. You got to come with me. And so in verse 9, we see a sort of subtle rebuke. Deborah says, I'll go, but the road you now take will not end in your glory, the glory of the battlefield. Glory is going to fall on someone else. It's going to fall on a woman. And you might be thinking as you're just reading this, if you read it for the first time, thinking, if, you, if I paused here going, oh, it's going to fall on Deborah. Deborah's going to get the glory, isn't she? Well, you've got to keep reading to realize that it's not Deborah who's about to get the glory. So God, in this kind of narrative up to this point, calls Brack to fulfill a responsibility to deliver his people. But Brack wants to share his responsibility. To his credit, you're going to see throughout this narrative that his faith grows. He actually does obey God, and he does fight Sisera's army. But here in the beginning, we see that fear sort of gets the best of him. And instead of trusting in the promise that God will deliver the victory, instead of trusting in God's word, he wants another assurance. He wants another guarantee. He wants Deborah, his personalized prophet, to come with him to guarantee victory. God alone is not enough. You see, it's not just that Brack won't go to war. It's not that he's flat out rejecting God's word. He's putting parameters on God's word. You see, Brack's obeying, but he's only obeying on his own terms. It's a sort of conditional obedience. That first word in English, Brack says, if. If you come and with me, then I'll do that. That's his spiritual vocabulary. I think we do this too, don't we? We put parameters on God. We start sentences with, well, God, if you do this, then I'll do that. 
if you show up in this particular way, at this particular time, then I'll do this. Brack in many ways represents us all, doesn't he? God's word comes to us, and we often just put parameters on it. It's not that we flat out want to reject it. We just want to accept it on our terms, on our conditions. And we learn, unfortunately, just like Barak learned, that there's no glory down that road at all. And so, back to the narrative, Deborah does go. And then, right as we're sort of getting ready for this battle, the scene shifts in verse 11, and we're introduced to a man, a Kenite, Heber. The Kenites, and we learn this in chapter 1, they more or less settled with the tribe of Judah down south. Not this family, not this man. They traveled north. They left the tribe of Judah in that area and moved north and settled near Nephtali. And then right as we're introduced to this guy, this scene shifts back to the battle. Verse 12. The battle begins. Deborah gives Brack the command and with Lightning speed, you know, him and his 10,000 men charge down the mountain, eventually get to Sisera and his army. And Sisera and his army is no match for him. Sisera gets off his chariot and starts running in the opposite direction. Verse 17. Where does he go? Well, we know where he goes. This is what the setup was in verse 12. He goes to the tent of Heber. And we learned there that Heber had a sort of treaty, a sort of alliance with King Jabin. And so Sisera, thinking and assuming probably that he's going to find some sanctuary with this family, goes there. But unfortunately for him, Heber's not there. But Heber's wife is. Her name is Jael. So Jael tells Sisera, don't be afraid. Right? She then ushers him into his tent. She sort of hides him. She gives him drink. He's exhausted. And then Sisera says, I don't want to be detected, so can you go out and guard the tent? Make sure that no one comes in. And she does just that. She, she goes out, guards the tent. Uh, but instead of guarding the tent, she grabs some items, uh, a hammer and a spike, and while he's fast asleep, walks in, you know the rest. I read it. Right? It's, it's, she, it's described, and then I love it how the Bible doesn't need to give us this detail, but gives it to us nevertheless. And he died. It's like, of course he died. You can't survive that sort of thing. You know, Sisera's running, thinks that he has sanctuary, only to find out that he's actually in jail. Some of you might get that one later. Eventually, Brack catches up with Sisera, finds him dead in this woman's tent. And in many ways, everything that Deborah said, everything she prophesied, the word of God perfectly is fulfilled. And so now with Sisera out of the way, with him dead, with, with his iron chariots gone, King Jabin's toast, Right? And so Israel charges and eventually defeats King Jabin. Verse 24, it says they're destroyed. It's, it's quite the story, isn't it? 
a small militia beating the, the greatest army of that area and that time. I mean, talk about an underdog story. A woman we, we think is going to be on the wrong side of history, right? She's, oh, she's practicing hospitality. Then it just flips. Turns out that she's on the right side of history. And behind all of this is God speaking through Deborah, assuring his people that he's going to rescue them and deliver them from their oppressors. It's an amazing story. But you see, it's not just a story that we need to read. This is the sort of story we've got to sing about. So that's what we have. Turn with me to look at chapter 5. We're going to look at about it in parts. We're not going to read all. We're not going to read all of it right now. I'm going to do it in three chunks. So we're going to read the first twelve verses, and then we'll talk about it. Then, in response to all of this, sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day. That the leaders took the lead in Israel. That the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. Hear, O kings. Give ear, O princes. To the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Sire, when you marched out on the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned. The travelers kept to the bypasses. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among the 40,000 in Israel? My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Tell it, tell of it. You who ride on white donkeys, who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way to the sound of musicians at the watering places, there they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. Then down at the gates march the people of the Lord. Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, break out in song, arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Abinam. We'll, we'll, we'll stop right there. You, you see, in, in some ways, Deborah and Brack are song leaders, aren't they, right? They, they, they're, they're leading the people of God in response to this great thing to sing about God. And so they call on different people in Israel, right? They call on kings and princes to sing in verse 2. They call on the rich and the poor to sing in verse 10. They call on all of Israel to, to sort of uh, sing like a great symphony in verse 11. And I don't know if you saw this, but as I just read this, in poetic form as they're singing, there's militaristic language and vocabulary in it. I'll, I'll point some out to you. There's marching, verse 4, war, verse 8, shields, verse 8, Commanders, verse 9. So as Deborah and Barak look back at this event, they start singing with God's people, calling God's people to sing and praise God. And they start saying, uh, you know, different, pointing out different leaders, different commandos, different people that should be praised because 
they showed up to the battle. Verse 2 is the leaders themselves are praised. Then in verse 7, Deborah herself, which is kind of weird that Deborah's singing and she's singing praises to herself. But nevertheless, in verse 7, she, she's a mother. Then verse 9, we read of the, the sort of commandos of Israel who offered themselves among the people on the battlefield. Verse 9. So different people are praised for showing up. But they're not the primary person who's to be praised in this song. They're not the focal point. The focal point is actually God and his victory. In chapter 4, the Lord is named in only four verses, and three of them come out of the mouth of Deborah. Four times. And then you read in chapter 5, in 12 verses, God's everywhere. Nine times, nine out of 12 verses have God in them. But it's not just that God, generally speaking, is to be praised. There's something specific that is being praised. It's God's intervening on Israel's sake that is to be praised. We see this in chapter 4. Uh, as Barak's army is, is sort of coming down like lightning, like I said earlier, from the mountain, Mount Tabor, and they're about to meet Sisera's army, we read in verse 15, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army. There's the victory. The Lord did it. And then if we read the verse right before it, we read this. And Deborah said to Barak, up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? Many translate it different ways. Does not the Lord fight for you? Does not the Lord go to war for you? You see, the most interesting thing in verses 1 through 12 in chapter 5 is not who went to war or not even why they went to, to war. It's who led them, who the commander of this battle was. And it wasn't primarily Barak, was it? It was the Lord himself who went out and marched against Sisera. And when he does this, we're, 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 we're explained what it felt like in sort of poetic words in verse 5. When God marched on Sisera, the earth trembled. Heavens poured out water. Clouds dropped their rain. This is a poetic description of how Israel actually won the battle. Barak and his unsophisticated army and militia was no match for Sisera and his well-trained, you know, green berets. There, you know, there's no option. God has to intervene. And so God levels the playing field. But he doesn't level the playing field to make like he's making it even. No, he literally levels the playing field. We learn later in verses 19 through 20 that God brought a storm and that there was a flash flood. And I don't know much about military and I don't know much about chariots, but I'm pretty sure they're hard to move when they're underwater and under mud. And so God does that very thing. God's, you could say, his, his, his armor, God's weapon, 
They're not swords or spears or arrows. God uses creation itself. Lightning, thunder, water, the clouds, heaven, stars. He uses creation in order to fight for his own people. And in so doing, delivers them. What we have here is God's description of God himself fighting for God's people. The Lord of lords, the the Lord of hosts, the Lord with his heavenly army, armed with creation. But in some way, this shouldn't surprise us. In verse 5, there's a clear reference, if you look at it, to Mount Sinai, which is a reference to God's deliverance of his people back in Exodus. It says, verse 5, if you look at it, the mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. So back in, back in Exodus, God's people are at Sinai, and the earth trembles. God had delivered his people out of the bondage of oppression in Egypt, and now they're on Mount Sinai, and God thunders like a cloud on the mountain. God formed a special bond with Israel but God, and I, and I really do think that Deborah and Brack's song is pointing to this, God is not stuck back in Sinai. God who came with lightning and thunder at Sinai is now here at Mount Tabor. The same God, the same deliverer, nothing's changed. God is mobile. The same God who delivered Israel through the Red Sea can rescue them from the waters of the Megiddo. The God who came on Mount Sinai is the same God who comes on Mount Tabor. God is mobile. God's on the move. And he's marching against his enemies in order to rescue his people. And whenever God marches on his enemies, creation itself becomes in small part undone. When God fights for his people, the earth trembles. That's the power of God. But the final battle isn't Mount Tabor. We have to fast forward because there are more battles that God will fight on behalf of his people. I mean, yes, God does win this battle, but there is another battle to be fought. And generations later, God would send his only son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And that Christ would march. He would march into Jerusalem. It was a death march. And he would die in the place of sinners. And that's exactly what he does. And right after his death, the Gospel of Matthew says this, And behold, the earth shook and rocks were split. And the reason why the earth shook at the death of Jesus is the same reason that the earth shook back at Mount Tabor and back at Sinai. God was fighting for his people. But unlike Mount Sinai, unlike Mount Tabor, on Mount Calvary, the decisive battle against oppression was won, not on physical oppression, but spiritual oppression, spiritual slavery brought on by sin. 
Jesus fought and defeated not earthly oppressors in that sense, but spiritual oppressions as he defeats the bondage of sin. You see, not only do kings and kingdoms enslave, as we see in our text in Judges, sin does this too. It enslaves, and Jesus on the cross defeats sin. By taking sin, our sin, he takes it upon himself as our substitute. On the cross, Jesus, just like in Judges, is fighting for his people. God fought for his people and delivered his people. And he does so not at Calvary through a storm. This time he fights through a sin-bearing Savior named Jesus. Now, if you're not a Christian and you want to know more information about what does it look like, what, why is this so important, talk to me. I'd love to. I'll be in the back. Or you could talk to pretty much anyone at this church. Or, just right where you're at, you could cry out to God. He is the Lord of Lords. He is the King of Kings. And he is full of grace and mercy and love. We'll learn this soon, but he can make even his enemies friends. So what we have in this first 12 verses is a description of God fighting for his people. And in many ways, he always has. He continues to fight for us. Like a father fights for his son, God fights to preserve us, to mature us. He fights to discipline us. God fights to protect us. He fights to teach us. Sometimes he just fights to get our attention. He fights to increase and maximize our joy in him. And so every day of the week, in the hard days and in the mundane days, in the wine presses of suffering and in the laughter of this world, God is fighting for us and for our attention. He's fighting for our full Devotion to himself. You might not feel it. Often we don't understand it, but that doesn't mean that he's not fighting for you. God is fighting for his people, he always has been. And that's what this next section is all about that because God fights for us, he calls us to trust him. Look at verses 12 through 23. Awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake. Break out in song. Arise, Barak. Lead away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then down marched the remnants of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim, their root, they marched down into the valley, following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Makur, March down the commanders, and from Zebulon, those who bear the lieutenant's staff. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah, and Issachar is faithful to Barak. Into the valley they rushed at his heels. Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searching of hearts. Why did you sit still among the sheepfold to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searching of hearts. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did you stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coasts of the sea, staying by his landings. 
Zebulon is a people who risked their lives to death. Naphtali, too, on the heights of the field. The kings came. They fought. They fought the kings of Canaan. At Tanakh and the waters of the Megiddo, they got no spoils of silver. From heaven, the stars fought for the courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, march on my soul with might. Then loud beat the horse's hoofs with the galloping, galloping of his steeds. Curse Merez, says the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly because they did not come out to help the Lord. To the help of the Lord against the mighty. We'll stop there. So in verses 12 through 8, we learn that not every tribe came to the battle, did they? Not every tribe got a participation trophy for this battle. Some tribes like Ephraim and Benjamin did, as did Issachar. We we read of that in verses 14 through 15. Reuben? No, they carried on with their sheep. Gilead, Dan, Asher. Verse 17. They stayed home. Then honor is given to, in verse 18, to Zebulon and Naphtali. They risked their lives on the field. But you just see here, there's a dividing line, isn't there? Right? Some charged the field. Some tribes charged their iPhones. And then in verses 19 through 22, Deborah and Brack return to the, the, the theme that we discovered in verses 1 through 12. It's the the theme of victory that God is fighting for Israel. And then in verse 23, it shifts back to this dividing line. And we've got some bad news, some really bad news, some cursed news. Merez is cursed. See that? And see particularly who's, who's declaring this curse? We've seen him before. The angel of the Lord. He's cursing Merez, who didn't show up to fight. They were in a per- perfect position. They were right where the battle is. They were perfectly positioned to help. They did nothing. Now, we know that God didn't need their help, but it's interesting that though God didn't need his, their help, they're still judged for not helping. And they're cursed. Merez wanted to save their lives, and yet in the end they lost their lives. Maybe you could think of Jesus when he says in Matthew 16 that whoever saves his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for the sake will find it. Maybe he has Merez on his mind when he said that. And yet I just want to point out the theology of this section is really interesting. We have sort of two theological truths Doctrines set side by side. Two mysterious truths that are like dancing partners. That is that God is sovereign. God fights for Israel. God's victory is his doing and his doing alone. We see this time and time again in the book of Judges. And yet, Israel is still responsible, aren't they? God's sovereignty and human responsibility dancing together. It says one author, D.A. Carson, said, God is absolutely sovereign, meaning that he's completely in control, 
And yet his sovereignty does not diminish human responsibility and human accountability. So in this section, we have multiple tribes judged. One is even cursed because they didn't show up, they didn't help, they were passive. God spoke pretty clearly through the prophet Deborah. Fight them, you'll win. God will do it. Some obeyed God's word, trusted in God's word. Others stayed home. And I think it's even interesting, I don't know if you saw this, how their, their disobedience, their, their passivity, their lack of help is described. In Reuben, they had a debate, right? Who's going to take care of the sheep? They rationalized their disobedience, and so they did nothing. Dan wants to stay with their ships. Gilead, well, it's really far to get to that battle for Gilead. They don't like traveling. They, they ran out of Dramamine, so they stay home. Asher, well, they need to protect their economic, inst- uh, their economic interests in the sea, and so they stay by the sea. And in many ways, if we were in each of these tribes' shoes, we'd say, well, all of them have legitimate, rational excuses why they shouldn't have gone to the battle. And yet, they're still judged for their lack of obedience. They excuse it away. They have their reasons. But don't we? So often, I don't think sin just calls out to us and says, go do something truly wicked. That's not how sin works. Sin works so much more subtly than that. Instead, sin, what it does is it takes our fears, some of our greatest fears, and weaponizes them. And says, well, are you sure you should give that money away? What about a rainy day? You don't know the future. Are you sure you should enter into this conflict? You don't know how they're going to respond. Are you sure you should do this? And so whatever the fear is, often sin takes it, capitalizes it, weaponizes it, and we then rationalize it away and say, yeah, you're right. You're right. They had their excuses. We have ours. God so often calls us to things, and we, because of our fears, start to rationalize it away. This past week, I drove up to Seattle with Phil for a uh, pastor's breakfast uh, for a bunch of Calvary Chapel pastors. And uh, we drove up there pretty early. I'd been up since 4.30. I didn't get particularly good sleep that night. And so we then spent 30 minutes or so in prayer. And I'm going to tell you, I was struggling, all right? It kind of reminds me of one time C.S. Lewis's secretary once asked him if he, while he was reading in his chair, if he ever fell asleep. And C.S. Lewis said, oh, no, heavens no, I've, I've never fallen asleep. But sleep has fallen upon me. Isn't that, isn't that how sleep works, right? Sleep just kind of descends on you like a warm blanket. That's what was going on. I'm sitting there in my prayer. I'm trying to stay awake. And yet sleep is coming upon me. And yet, and I don't know if you ever experienced this, I just felt like I was supposed to pray about something out loud, specifically. I just couldn't get it out of my mind. But I thought, I'm tired. 
I deserve a pass this morning. These are all pastors. They can pray. The irony of all this is that it was a prayer about fear. And yet, I sat there and prayed nothing. I have no idea what my prayer could have done, would have done. I just know this. I was no help that morning because I kept silent. I was no help to the different pastors and men in that room. I didn't step out in faith. I had my reasons, and those reasons paralyzed me. When was the last time God called you into something big? Or maybe something small, but nevertheless, big or small, it's something that if God himself doesn't show up, you're hosed. You're in trouble. You see, every day of God calls us to trust him. God calls us to walk in faith. He calls us in the mundane things of the week and in the extraordinary things in the week. And he calls us into things and says, I know you're going to have your reasons. I know that in some of this, you're going to want to rationalize away. But I'm telling you to step in and trust me. Some of the tribes didn't trust God. And I think in some ways, God's calling us to be less like Reuben and more like Zebulon, to just show up. Sometimes that's just enough, to just show up, and God will have his victory. Now, in many ways, this is what our last section is all about. Really briefly, look at verse 24. You're going to see a contrast here. I'm just going to point it out. It's going to be two women, jail and Sisera's mother. There's a contrast here and some application that we're going to make from it. Verse 24. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women most blessed. He asked for water and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet, he sank, he fell, he lay still. Between her feet, he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. We got the point. Verse 28. Out of the window, here's the contrast, here's the new woman. Out of the window she peered, the mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princess's answer, indeed, she answers herself, have they not found and divided the spoils? A womb or two for every man? Spoil of dye materials for Sisera. Spoils of dye materials embroidered. Two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoils. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord. But your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. And the land had rest for 40 years. So in this last section we see a contrast between Jael and Sisera's mother. In verse 24, Jael is most blessed. Actually, if you look at verse 24, she's doubly blessed, isn't she? Brack and uh, Deborah call her blessed twice in that one verse. And then in verses 25 through 27, we read of a poetic description of what she did, right? How she defeated Sisera, how she killed him. It's pretty squeamish, right? 
When, when you read it, you think, that's, that's, that's kind of bad. It's uncomfortable. And yet, the Bible's assessment of her is that she is praised, doubly praised. And then it shifts in verse 28, and we read of the mother of Sisera. And she's in her fancy house, looking out the window, awaiting her son. She's, she's looking, she's, she's listening, she's awaiting the chariots to come back. Her son, you can, you can just see her, her pride for her son beaming out of the window. But as she waits, she waits some more, and she realizes, where is he? Right? Her anticipation is killing her. Where is she? So she turns to her maidens, her princesses, and is like, what, 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 what's going on? Where, where are they? And it's interesting because of what really is concerning her. She wants him to come back because she's concerned with the plunder. Did you see that? The embroidered clothes, right? She's awaiting her Louis Vuitton purse and her fancy jeans. And she's like, come on, come back with your plunder so that I can put on some fancy clothes. So she turns to her maidens and asks, well, where are they? And they effectively say, you know, it it takes a while to kind of divide the plunder. So be patient. And then in verse 30, we have a a reference that says, to a womb or or two for every man or every warrior. Which when you read that, you should be utterly horrid. After Sisera would evidently win the battle, you know, all all his men got the plunder. And it wasn't just clothing, it was women. And so they say, it takes a long time to plunder women and plunder clothes. Just wait patiently. Chanel will come. But we know that Sisera is not coming, don't we? His mother is going to wait and wait and wait. Her appetite for luxury will grow, but it's not going to be satisfied. And ironically, it's not just that Sisera is not coming. It's that Israel and God are coming And then the song ends with a contrast, verse 31. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. So what we have in this section is Jael, who's praised, and Sisera's mother's, who is not. I mean, Sisera's mother doesn't even get a name. Jael gets her hands dirty, doesn't she? Sisera's mother, she would never get her hands dirty. That's what her princesses and maidens are for. Jael lacks a sort of respectability, doesn't she? She isn't very hospitable to Sisera. Sisera's mother, well, she would probably follow all of the rules, be very respectable. Every hospitality norm, perfectly obeyed. You, know, she's, you can just imagine her. She's upper class. She's, she's everything a woman would want to be, well-dressed, well-liked, well-positioned. She has this influential and famous child to beam about. She's got everything. She's a model of a woman, except she's lacking something, one extremely important thing. She's lacking God. She doesn't need God. She may not even want God. After all, She's no friend of God. I think there's a subtle message in setting these two women against each other, contrasting them, that it's suggesting to us that we cannot confuse godliness with respectability. Jail isn't very respectable. 
I mean, just think about all that she did. She lures a man into her tent, tires him out, butters him up with some milk, and then uses some kitchen appliances to kill him. I mean, yes, God uses her. Deborah praises her, and she, in the end, becomes a friend of God. But there's not, she's not very respectable. I mean, may, and then the wonderful thing is, maybe what was going on is that she and her family were running from God. But in that moment, her running stops, and she ran to God and set her face against God's enemy in the face of Sisera. In a worldly perspective, Jael is not the model woman, and yet from heaven's perspective, she is a woman to be blessed because she helped in delivering God's people. She rightly understood who Sisera was and that Sisera was standing in the way of God, and she helped. Some of the tribes didn't even help. Oh, but this woman did. We can't confuse respectability and godliness. I mean, after all, if you go to the New Testament, Jesus' biggest opponents attacked Jesus and his followers and said, you're not very respectable. You're breaking social norms. What are you doing? And yet the application there is the same application for us today and in our text. Sometimes the more respectable you are, the less effective you become. And yet we still have a problem with this text. I mean, how could God use jail? I think we should stop asking that question and start asking this question. I think we should turn it on ourselves and say, how could God use any of us with our sin, with our past, with our spiritual warts? How is it that God could use any of us? And yet he does, doesn't he? God can use us in the same way God uses jail. Because the point is not our past. The point is not our unique flaws or failures or weaknesses. The point is that God can use those weaknesses and flaws for his own glory. Recently, I was listening to an interview of an author who wrote a book called Struck Down But Not Destroyed. It's a book about anxiety and this man's struggle for a decade with anxiety. And he writes this, that finally, one day after struggling for years and years with anxiety, he realized this, that anxiety is a spiritual tool in the hands of a mighty God that was shaping his own soul. Sometimes God conquers things in our lives, but sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he uses God, sometimes God uses things in our lives, hard things, terrible things, things like anxiety and depression. Sometimes he uses those things and they're tools in God's hands. Just like Jael had a tool in her hands that God used for his own purposes. Even anxiety can be used in God's mighty hands to accomplish some mighty things as he uses it to shape our souls. Because in all of those ways, they help us and make us and call us to trust God more and more and more. And when we do this, or when we see this, or when we experience this, when we step out in faith and trust God, something will bubble up inside of us. It's the same thing we see in our text. We'll sing. We'll sing praise to God's marvelous, 
marvelous deeds. So I don't think there's any more apt way to close the service than to sing. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to sing of the story and delight our hearts in God and what he's done for us. Let's pray. God, we are grateful not only that, that, that of what you've done, but that we can sing back to you all that you've done. Lord, we have so many fears and worries. We pray, Lord, that you would help us walk in obedience to you regardless of those fears. Guide us, empower us,